Hello and welcome to The Wealth Show. We're here today to discuss August's biggest stories in wealth and asset management. My name is Jeremy Gordon. I'm the investment editor at City Wealth Manager. I'm joined today by our excellent team of reporters, Olivia Bibble, Chris Johnson and Caroline Hood. Um, Caroline, I think we're going to start with you first. You had a pretty interesting story about um, some tech issues at Evelyn, um, particularly after uh, the merger that, that formed Evelyn a couple of years ago. Break it down for us. Yeah, so this is yet another example of the tech troubles that companies face following a consolidation. As mm. we all know, Tilney acquired Smith & Williamson in 2019 and they rebranded to Evelyn Partners last year. So having spoken to a few sources over the past few months, mm-hmm. um, a consistent pain for them was the tech integration between Tilney and Smith & Williamson. And what, what are we talking about here by, by tech? Are we just talking about emails or something more? Right. So, like, from my understanding, Tilney used to be on X-Plan, which is basically Mm. a financial planning-led toolkit, Mm -hmm. um, versus Smith & Williamson, which um, was running on Avalok. I think the investment managers at the time were just learning. They were just getting integrated onto Avalok before they were acquired. Um, So this was happening, and rather than creating one platform for everyone, Evelyn Partners decided to move all the investment managers across the business onto Avalok and all the financial planners across the business onto X-Plan and then connect the two using an internal platform called Alpha. If that sounds confusing, that's because it is. (laughs) Um, And, you know, having spoken to people, like there there was a lot of confusion as to like whether you know, they were supposed to originally all move to Alpha, or mm. sorry, all move to Avalok or all move to X-Plan. Um, so, yeah, the the result of this is that there were lots of functionality issues. Um, for example, clients were trading on incorrect figures and cash was sent into accounts that were not visible to users. OK, uh, that doesn't sound great. I mean, so mm. is your is your impression that this is a kind of bump in the road that they're now past or, or are there still things they're ironing out here? I think, to be honest, like that, there are still some some issues. So, for example, I found out that the the um, kind of client login portal, I think it was called My Evelyn, they had some issues with that. It, it's got to the point where where clients can't see their their book costs, um, which is concerning. Um, but other than that, it seems to the the issues between kind of the the merger between Avalok and X-Plan have seemed to smooth over. Okay. But, but you know, Evelyn Partners isn't the only firm that has had difficulties in, in migrating clients to, to a new operating system. Right. I mean, so I think Brooks McDonald, that, this wasn't a merger, but they were moving over to kind of a new system a couple of years ago, right? And yeah, what happened? I think it took longer than they expected. Yeah, exactly. I think it was supposed to transi- transition to um, SS&C technologies, um, which is basically, I think quite a large fund transfer agency. Um, And yeah, it was supposed to kind of be finished in 2021, um, but they missed their deadline and and it's cost the firm around 3.8 million. Okay. Well, um, you know, consolidation is uh, is afoot in the the wealth management sector. Uh, So there's probably going to be more of these kind of tech stories. And and in fact, there's there's another... um, kind of story or a series of related stories keen to get to talk about. Close Brothers Asset Management, you know, the the, the wealth management arm of Close Brothers. There's yeah. quite a lot going on. Maybe I'm going to ask you, where, where should we start? <laughs> yeah, so this is um, apparently called Project Oval. So it's the sale of Close Brothers UK wealth arm, Close Brothers Asset Management. Mm-hmm. Um, reportedly, it's being led by Goldman Sachs, 15 firms, 
have expressed interest in the business. Um, and apparently they could sell the unit for approximately 300 million. That's the price they want. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason why this is really interesting is because Close Brothers Asset Management um, prides itself on this bespoke investment process, which really has attracted quite a few investment managers recently to the business, yeah. primarily from Investec Wealth. Um, so yeah, so the firm's been rummaging through Investec Wealth um, for since, I mean, since the beginning of the year, I think Peter Horton, we've recently reported on him. He was uh, the divisional director in the Cheltenham branch. He moved and he has made the firm's 10th Investec hire since the beginning of this year. Right. Um, but basically, yeah, I covered this story a while back and it was just a lot of people from Investec who were upset with the investment process becoming more centralized. Um, and so they decided to go to Close Brothers Asset Management, which has this supposedly more bespoke investment model. Yeah. And so now the firm is going to be acquired. Um, people are really concerned. They don't know who's going to acquire the business, you know, whether they've just jumped ship just for the firm to, to again, you know, be acquired by someone else and such. So, so basically investment managers at Close Brothers, including some who might have, have, have joined it because it's got a more decentralized Mm. process uh, are now concerned that a new buyer could come in yeah. and you know do what firms across wealth management are doing and centralize the investment process more is yeah. that right yeah exactly and um you know to my understanding um close is now concerned that people from let's say investec or rathbones who are going to be joining or or are um, on garden leave are going to do a 180 yeah. and go back to rathbones or investec and maybe we should say what all of our audience knows already, I think. Of course, mm. the, the backdrop to this is that um, Rathbones and Investec, uh, Investec W&I, are merging, right? Um, mm. I suppose a, a small, you know, we're speaking at the end of August here. This, this is going to come out uh, in early September. But um, yet yeah, not long after that, um, you know, on the 21st of September, I, I think it is Rathbones and Investec are actually going to merge, yeah. um, you know, creating this this giant, uh, you know, much larger uh kind of force in UK wealth management. That's the kind of backdrop to all of this, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm, okay. And I suppose, uh, you know, you, you did an interesting piece right, about who could buy Close Brothers Asset Management. I mean, do you want to take us through through some of the names? Or Yeah, so some people are speculating that it could be NatWest. Um, they were linked to Quilter, but nothing has since materialised. Yeah, everyone um, seems to be up for sale. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so maybe they're finding Close more appealing. Um, similarly, as we're saying, Brooks McDonald was supposed to buy 7IM, uh, which is also apparently selling for 300 meant, million. They were meant to bid for it for about 300 million, and, and you know the owners want 400 million. That's the story, right? Oh, right, exactly. So, so you know they might find close again more appealing. Um, I was thinking maybe someone really left field like SJP, um, who who might just want to buy more assets. They don't really have a large discretionary business. Um, compared to their advisory business. So that was a potential. Mm. Um, and then thinking about people that, you know, are just building on their assets. Even Partners was another option. It's had three acquisitions this year. Um, you know, it's still, I think it's still Private waiting for. Backed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Maybe one, one other name um, that might have been in the mix was Raymond James, right? Mm. And um, Olivia, if I can bring you in, um, you know, there's some, Pretty surprising news um, about Raymond James and uh, the FCA kind of slowing or blocking its expansion last week, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's going on? Yeah, sure. So Raymond James was 
was posited as a potential buyer of Close um, because it showed interest in buying other businesses mm. with a decentralized model. It bought um, Charles Stanley, right? Yes, but things are looking maybe less positive for Raymond James recently. From the 16th of August, um, the FCA has instituted a range of restrictions um, on the wealth manager, including that mm. Raymond James can no longer, without prior written consent from the regulator, onboard any new branches, um, employ or contract any new investment managers, or register any new trading names. Um, wow. So, so yeah. in other words, you know, they can't, they, can't, they can't open new offices and they can't even hire new investment managers, right? Right. So kind of any new hiring decision would be at the discretion of the regulator, which is um, a big step for the FCA to take. Right. Um, I think, you know, so the technical term for what the FCA has done here is a, a VRAC. You know, this is notionally anyway, it's, it's voluntary um, of Raymond James to do this when asked by the FCA, although I think firms don't really say no, right? Right. Um, so these VRACs are normally used when there's evidence that firms may not be in contravention or may be in contravention or are not meeting the regulator's standards. But mm. in the past, if firms have refused to take these on on a voluntary basis, um, the FCA has the right to impose the same restrictions in a non-voluntary basis um, under their initiative powers. So Which it's voluntary, but... Yeah. And so Ray Raymond James, you know, this U US firm, which has been expanding, I think we can say aggressively in the UK, mm -hmm. and we b bought Charles Stanley, and, um, you know, it has it has a decentralized model. It, it's it's almost, you know, my impression is it's like a kind of system that you, you can you can open up some kind of plug into and do your own thing a bit. Is that that your is that right? Yes. And I it's a hugely attractive model for investment managers that mm. um, want to escape this wider theme of centralization yeah. um, that's happening in the industry. Um, and Raymond James has been considered in, in the past to be a protectorate of this style of investment management and freedom almost. But yeah. that is now maybe coming under fire from the FCA um, mm. in some ways. Well, reading between the lines, it, it, it seems like what, what, what could be the issue here is that, that autonomous model um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, suitability, whether everyone's getting, this, you know, the same service or, or a good enough service if you're the end client, right? Um, so if that is the issue, you know, you, you wonder what that means, really. For yeah. Raymond James's model. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, a lot of wealth management there, a lot of consolidation in wealth management. I think it's time we switch to fund management. Yeah. Um, Chris, going to bring you in. Um, you know, GARS, uh, once the biggest fund in the UK, started at Standard Life and then, you know, m moved over with, with the, uh, the deal um, where Standard Life and Aberdeen merged. It's over. What, what happened? It is over. So GARS was the global absolute return strategy that Standard Life Investments ran. Mm. At its apex, it reached £53 billion, but it closed at £1 billion. Right. So it suffered from huge underperformance. Um, you know, one could argue that it just got, you know, too big and was a victim of its own success. Yeah. It struggled with kind of liquidity issues. It faced um, kind of difficulties in regarding to when uh, managers were implementing trades and so forth. But it could really track its underperformance 
performance from 2013. So when it um, took place, Ewan Munro and Keith Skioch, mm. they were running the fund. It was doing really, really well. They were the um, kind of architects. Exactly. Like, Ewan Munro. Exactly. And when Ewan departed from Aberdeen in 2013 to join Aviva Investors, mm -hmm. um, two years after that, in 2015, you started to see underperformance. Um, and it just went downhill from there. And I think... You know, this really speaks to the fact that Aberdeen is just struggling to kind of figure out, you know, what is its flagship um, product? You know, what makes it distinct from other asset managers? And it's on that road and Gars was that and now it is not. And unfortunately, there's a vacuum now yeah. for them. And you know, there, there was quite a lot of turnover in, in the kind of multi-asset team that ran Gars, maybe a couple of kind of reboots or revamps. Yeah. There's another one again now, which is which has kind of led to, to, to Gars be, being merged away. Um, and you, you know, you, you, you did an interesting piece, really, after Aberdeen had some weak results, right? Yes. Um, and the shares dropped. And, and, you know, you did this piece looking at, well, sort of what next for Aberdeen, right? Yeah. So the H1 results at Aberdeen were quite negative. So they suffered outflows of £5.2 billion from its investment um, division. Mm, um, and it suffered. Yes. Yeah. And it suffered, um, while its AUM went down 1% by £4 billion, but its personal and advisor divisions represented more than 85% of its adjusted operating profit. And I was speaking to some analysts who, one who mentioned to me the fact that he felt that Aberdeen just didn't have, you know, the right products for the market. Um, somebody else was very sceptical about the fact that they wanted to focus more on fixed income. He felt that, how can you change your whole strategy just to follow, you know, short-term market trends? But again, I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, what makes Aberdeen unique in the market and I think a lot of analysts are just unsure now they just don't mm, know right they used to have a very strong Asia Pacific franchise yeah. and, and you know maybe you know even that's not quite what it was no okay well um, on the subject of underperforming funds mm. I'm going to bring you back in Caroline uh, there, there's a report called uh, Spot the Do Dog which I think all of our audience will know um, fund groups hate it because it very publicly mm -hmm. uh, names and shames uh, their funds which have been repeatedly underperforming in, in colorful language. Uh, Caroline, uh, Best Invest, in fact, you know, compiles this report owned by Evelyn Partners. What, yes. w what was the uh, what was the headline figure in the latest report? Yeah. So for people that don't know the Spot the Dog report, um, I'm just going to say they highlight, as Jeremy was saying, they highlight the worst performing funds, which have underperformed their benchmark for three years in a row by 5%. SJP was the worst performing fund group. St. James's Place. So yes, St. James's Place with six funds accounting for £29.3 billion worth of assets. So that's 63% of the overall £46.2 billion pounds worth of dog fund assets. That's yeah. an insane amount. SJP's AUM uh, slightly escapes me, but it's uh, <laughs> that's actually a sizable yeah. proportion of it, right? And so the, these are funds which uh, SJP kind of controls the mandate for it, selects the managers, and then, uh, you know, if you're an SJP client, your money ends up in these funds, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's another uh, SJP story uh, or, or a kind of connection we can come on to here. Oliver, I'm going to bring back you in uh, and ask about the vexa vexatious question of consumer duty, which finally, finally uh, the rules kicked in at the end of July, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that or the kind of SJP connection there? Yeah, so the consumer duty deadline is now come and gone. Um, a lot of preparation has gone into it for many firms. Yeah. Um, SGP is facing some issues in the aftermath of that deadline now. Um, mm. In fact, before you come on to that, I'm just going to say, I mean, so the tenor, you know, I think from, from some of the kind of conversation, background conversations you've had, 
lots of people have kind of said in a way, no big deal or, or not quite no big deal, but oh, this is not a concern for us, you know, protecting client outcomes and all that stuff is already integral to us, right? Yes, exactly. So speaking to different firms um, b- before the deadline, just about their preparation and the consumer duty project, mm. um, most of the people in charge of these projects would say that they're documenting something that they already did. They've mm. always cared about consumer outcomes because, you know, it's it's part of their job. You'd um, hope so. But at the same time, everyone has had to take a long, hard look at their what they're offering clients for their money um, mm-hmm. and whether they're providing an amount of value that um, will be worth it when if it comes under scrutiny from the regulator rather than just their clients. Yeah. Um, so coming on to SJP, they've actually said consumer duty is going to have some impact on their model, right? And they're, they're even changing their, admittedly, slightly controversial fee structure, right? Yes, exactly. So SJP, like everyone else, has had to take a look at um, what they're charging their clients. Um, mm. And it seems that they've come to the conclusion that the fee model that they had is not providing the value that um, the regulator is now asking for. Okay. So they've changed their fee model, which um, was unique to begin with. Um, yeah. That's caused some problems now for SJP. And the aftermath of that, um, their share price dropped 16% and it hasn't really recovered. Yeah, I think in terms of the specifics, uh, we won't go into the exact nature of the charging model. Famously, it can't really be explained in a line or even a paragraph. But particularly for long-term clients, I think it's those invested for, for 10 years, they're capping charges. And, you know, they said as an exceptional cost in their results, this is they estimated it's going to cost them $859 million long-term. I think, you know, that sent their, their shares down uh, something like 15% on the day and, I, and maybe more since, and I don't think it's really recovered so pretty massive impact right Right. so uh, while people were confident that the fca was not encouraging firms to cut fees um Mm. and that maybe it would have no material impact on their businesses sjp may in fact be the first casualty you know following the deadline passing okay very interesting i think possibly more more to see there um i think you know last thing we're going to come on talking about another interesting aspect Issue in asset management, right, Chris? Yes. So, Jeremy, I've been meaning to ask you about line trusts um, and GAM. So, mm. we had a conversation and you mentioned that you thought that the a merger would go through and it clearly did not. So, you know, why were you surprised? Like, what what was the thought process behind that? That's right, Chris. You've, you've called me out. Not live <laughs> on air here, but sadly, I don't know if we're even going to cut this. It's true. I, 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 so, yeah, let, let, let's step back a bit. You know, Land Trust, UK Asset Management, uh, led by uh, Chief Executive John Irons, deal-making Chief Executive Don, John Irons, um, made this uh, bid for GAM. I think maybe the kind of their interest emerged, emerged in April. And, you know, GAM's faced, we're not going to go into them today, but it's, it's a Swiss, Swiss group. You know, it's had all sorts of problems. And basically, I think, you know, Land Trust were looking to pick it up for a song. Uh, and, you know, maybe they'd be able to extract various benefits, turn the business around and, and gain some other stuff along the way. Um, I did think the merger would go through, even though a lot of people, I guess smarter people said it wouldn't, partly because many people seem, you know, very uncertain, including GAMS management, that, that it's going to survive if it didn't. And um, yeah, it, I think its survival now, now looks open to question. Uh, but perhaps more for us, you know, I think... This raises quite a lot of interesting questions for Lion Trust and for for John Irons, the chief executive. 
what do you think the fallout would be on on him? Do you think he may have to leave? What, what do you see happening in the future? Well, you know, speaking to some shareholders have been quite tight-lipped, I have to say, but speaking to some, some analysts um, in the kind of wake of this going through, I think people were surprised by, you know, just how far short of the support they fell. You know, they needed about... Two thirds. Well, they needed two thirds of the GAM shares to say yes to the to the uh, acquisition. Basically, they only got like a third. Mm. So you know, it was a it was a huge failure in that in that uh, sense. And also, you know, there was a sense, even though Land Trust shareholders actually voted yes, say yes, we're, we're happy for this to go ahead. There was a sense that they were pretty unhappy. This was a deal people didn't like, and John Irons was 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 pushing it through against their will. What I mean, what that means for him. I think clearly it, it puts him under pressure. Um, you know, it's the latest in a, in a series of things for Lion Trust, really. Um, there was a bit of a, a kind of boardroom bust up, I think probably about, about the, uh, you know, possibly about this deal behind the scenes. Uh, there was a shareholder vote over pay last year yeah. over, you know, just how much John Irons uh, wanted to get paid in, in some sense. Um, and really, you know, I think something else interesting that people said was that in some ways, you know, what was Land Trust hoping to get from the GAM deal? Mm -hmm. It was maybe hoping to get kind of a more of an international distribution footprint, you know, an ability to kind of sell its funds more overseas. Uh, because really, you know, it, it's got quite a quite a retail base um, in, in the UK. Uh, and maybe there's a sense that's kind of, you know, it's, it's shone a light on some of Land Trust's weaknesses. Now, you know, John Irons has been a brilliant, sometimes brilliant deal maker in the past. Um, in particular, you know, if we look at what, or maybe we'll step back, I think when he took over in 2010, you know, the business was in quite a bad state. And he's made a lot of good acquisitions. In particular, in 2017, um, he did a deal which bought in the team led by Peter Michaelis, the Sustainable Future team, um, who, which, is, which has really turned, you know, Lion Trust into a, a strong force in ESG investing. I mean, arguably only behind impacts. So I think John Irons is under pressure. You know, he, he does have questions to answer. Uh, and, it, you know, before, you know, he's kind of hung his success on the deals that he can do and then paying off. And if that starts to happen, if that stops happening, then, well, we shall see. And what was your view on just how it played out in the media? Because, I mean, mm. in my opinion, it was a fiasco, really. It was insane, just the kind of back and forth in the way they were using the press almost to kind of argue against each other. Yes, so, one analyst called it theatre. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's not uncommon when these cont slightly contentious acquisitions are trying to be pushed through. I mean, this one did seem to get particularly... Uh, I mean, it was a saga, yes. wasn't it? You know, there was this shareholder pressure group, uh, New GAM or New G-A-M-E, uh, you know, they were making statements that sometimes almost daily Irons was making statements. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these statements were like being leaked to the press. Uh, others just looked, you know, quite ugly. I mean, there was, I think the day before the deal, you know, John Irons was, you know, he sent around an email to GAM shareholders saying that you know, one of its star managers basically w was, uh, you know, wanted the deal to go through, Would you know, wasn't sure GAM would survive if it didn't, that kind of thing. And then the manager themselves turned around and was like, I'm shocked and dismayed by what he said. So it got pretty ugly. Uh, and yeah, I, I think, you know, the nature of that kind of slightly pugilistic way uh, of trying to push the deal through um, looks pretty bad. No, it hasn't succeeded as well. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Well, I think that's all we uh, have time for today. Um, thanks very much to Olivia, uh, to Caroline and Chris. 
Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. you.